Hey, everybody. It's Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I am Ben Ennis. We're going to bring you uh, Toronto Blue Jays general manager Ross Atkins' uh, media availability in uh, mere moments. The Blue Jays, pretty manic right now, I would say. It was two weeks ago today I was doing Jays talk after the Blue Jays dropped their ninth game in 11 chances against American League East teams. They lost three or four to the Rays that day. Dropped them to one game over 500. Since then, winners of three straight series, two of which were uh, against division leaders, uh, albeit uh, the American and National League Central division leaders, but they were still leading the division. Uh, They now have a chance for a fourth straight series victory, uh, securing themselves of at least a series split against... The Houston Astros, the defending World Series champions, uh, they got Framber Valdez on the hill to oppose them, who's been spectacular this season, uh, although he's played the A's twice. So take his numbers slightly with a grain of salt. Now, you can define beauty in many ways. I know many of you do. Uh, here's how I define it. A two-hour and three-minute baseball game. That was spectacular. It, it was not, you know, a couple of offenses flailing. It was Chris Bassett doing his best Chris Bassett. Um, almost had his second complete game of the season. All right, Ross Atkins is uh, sitting down in the dugout. Let's uh, let's send it down to Roger Center. Everybody ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty hard, Hazel. Thank you. Ross, Shai uh, wrote an article today on Anthony Bass meeting with the head of Pride Toronto. Can you give us some insight on how that meeting went and feedback from that meeting? And do you anticipate Bass doing more moving forward yeah the meeting went exceptionally well i think a very good outcome as a a good first step um you know hearing how helpful it was for anthony and how insightful how much it increased his awareness around um, not just the community but the feeling of inclusivity uh, is is a great first step and i think just moving forward that needs to continue Uh, and we're very confident it will do you get a sense that he has maybe not changed his beliefs, but maybe can understand what the outrage was about? I think he does. I think one of the, you know, it's, it, there's there's no benefit in any of this, but uh, one of the aspects of something this harmful and hurtful uh, for someone inside these walls, like myself, and having the one-on-one interactions with Anthony is that uh, I felt his apology and his accountability to be authentic, um, or we would be uh, talking about a different outcome, quite frankly. I mean, that was absolutely necessary for us to be together um, with how strongly we feel about the progress that has been made with the Toronto Blue Jays in this community. It needs to continue. Uh, I don't think you can ever do enough, and we'll you know, stay true to that commitment to make this environment as inclusive as we possibly can. Any concern moving forward that, you know, the boos and just the some of the hurt feelings from the fan base will somehow affect him, um, a distraction to the club moving forward? Well, I'm certain it affects him, and that's okay. <laughs> you know, we're, we love our fans. We uh, understand, well, we... Uh, they're entitled to react that way, and you know, I think uh, Anthony has processed that and um, you know, understands that there are um, 
you know, repercussions for behavior. Ross, what are the next steps? What else is he going to do, and what resources are actually being used? Well, well, we'll continue to use the resources here in Toronto as well as the resources with MLB to um, continue that journey. This is just a first step for him. The fact that it was so enlightening and uh, hearing his reaction to it, I think, makes makes those next steps uh, on this journey, um, you know, much more powerful. And I think he can share more about that as we go. And you mentioned the conversations you had with him, uh, the apology that yeah. he shared with you. What else went into the decision to not have any level of internal discipline with him, and what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I think that was that was the most significant piece, is that he was accountable. He wanted to apologize, um, not just to me, um, which was very important, but more importantly to our community and this community. So, um, you know, without that, as I said, we'd have a, a very different outcome. Um, you know, and I, then I think the willingness to do something about it um, being paramount and seeing that step taken was is is a good first step. Ross, we've heard from a, a lot of fans who either aren't comfortable coming this weekend or who aren't sure how they're going to feel when they walk in the building. What, what's your message to those fans in fact? Yeah, with that we continue to work hard to make sure this is an inclusive environment and one that we will not stand for. Um, behavior that makes it otherwise. Um, obviously, um, you know there are things that happen that we have to react to, like the case of Anthony Bass, and uh, we will react and we will respond. We feel like with his apology and him being accountable and taking the steps to become more aware, um, that we're one step closer to being a more inclusive environment. And we understand that that never ends, and we want to be a part of that um, very, very much. Uh, see that as a significant part of our jobs here. Some of those same fans were upset that the only thing that they got from the organization was a, was a statement, and I think they wanted to hear from you or Mark to talk about it. Yeah. Do you have any regrets about not being more visible and making yourself available to them? Well, I, I mean, anything that we can do better, we want to do. And any feedback that we get, we take to heart. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think in the moment I was available to those who asked to speak with me individually. Uh, we uh, believe wholeheartedly in John Snyder as a spokesperson for this organization, and he represents our values and our message as well, um, and, and I'm here today. Ross, how much of this outcome was in consultation with MLB Billy Bean and the union? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I called Major League Baseball and Billy Bean myself immediately and asked for their guidance, for their uh, advice, and you know how we could best take the next step. Ross, will there be any added security in place on, on the weekend, or on Pride weekend with, around the bullpen area? I know that we're going to do everything we can to make it as inclusive as possible. Why hasn't, um, why hasn't Anthony taken questions more broadly if he is contrite? Uh, I, I think he will continue to be available. I mean, he's in the clubhouse every day and I think, um, you know, is available to speak to individuals. And if that is something that um, we decide together with Anthony would be helpful, and then we'll, we'll look to take that step as well. From this experience, is there any effort to have a broader education to all players in the organization so that this stuff you know, does it yeah. reoccur? I think that, that Caitlin is a very good point, and it is not something that we haven't done, but I think we need to intensify and take uh, more steps in that direction. 
Russ, is that something that happens in spring training? I know there's some days with players' meetings, but are, are there any conversations around this with a broader group early? Yeah, in the there, there, there are conversations with a broader group in spring training, and one of the things we need to challenge ourselves to do more of is once we break from camp, making sure that um, yeah, the discipline stays there throughout the course of the season. I think and, that's where the opportunities lie. Sorry, and we uh, focus a lot on the team of the Blue Jays are a very big organization with a lot of employees, some of whom would be part of the LGBT plus community. Sure. Has there been any communication with what's being offered as resources or communication back and forth in, in terms of the situation? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, our, um, you know, from our leadership with Mark Shapiro and Marnie Starkman have done an incredible job of outreach um, and that will continue. How are the rest of the players on the team handling all of this? Yeah, I, I think similarly to myself in that we want to ensure that people know that uh, this environment is an inclusive one and an accepting one um, and accountable and recognizing that he's a teammate and that we're all a part of this. It's not um, you know, not something that happened in a vacuum. Bryce, you mentioned the authenticity of his, of his apology. What did he apologize for specifically? For creating any harm and for hurting others and, um, you know, was not his intent and his emotion was very strong, as was mine. Um, you know, I was personally hurt myself and uh, he felt my disappointment and anger, so it was a very charged exchange. Are there players uh, from your team that will be uh, sort of demonstrating their support for uh, the Pride weekend coming up in the next couple days, like in a very visible way? Yeah, it's, it's really up to our players, and it's not something that we demand, uh, obviously, so really up to the individual. Did, Ross, did you get an answer as to why he posted the video, deleted it, and then posted it again? I mean, you. We had back and forth dialogue, like to get into the specifics of everything that happened throughout the course of that 40-hour period would be um, probably too difficult. But I think you could, you know, get that from him as he's um, available on a daily basis to each of you, and like I said about the more broad perspective afterwards. Did you ask him to remove it? Again, I would, you know, say everything I just said to to Gregor. But yes, is the short answer. Ross, he seems to have expressed a remorse for the situation that has been caused by this, but do you get the sense that he has changed his stance or his belief on you know, the information that he shared, the video he shared? I, I don't want to speak for him, but I do get the sense that the awareness um, has increased, the enlightenment has occurred, and those are words from him. Um, but to take it to step to changing his beliefs, I would rather you ask him. Do you think the public should forgive him? I think, you know, that in life, everyone um, deserves a chance to be um, forgiven, um, you know, I think once. Um, you know, there is, it's a very tricky thing to talk about, you know, public and broad. I, what I can speak to is from an organization based on how he responded to us and how authentic he talked about wanting to increase his awareness and be accountable and take action that we wanted to give him as an organization that opportunity to do so. And then I would say, second to that, had that not been there, then we would have to be having a very different discussion. How big of a distraction is this on, on a weekend that, that normally is, is a big celebration for the city and for the team? Well, I mean, you know, it, 
it's it's worthy whatever the the distraction is um, you know it, it, we understand why that that's there Have you had much communication with Alec in the last 48 hours? Yeah, so it's been a, obviously a very emotional um, few days for, for Alec with or, or a couple of days for Alec. And you know, one of the things that over the span from the start of spring training um, to you know his last start it, in professional sport, one of the things that is so difficult to deal with is failure. The other one is massive success. And you see personality, um, you see character strengths, you see character opportunities in those moments. Um, it's rare that when someone is, you know, hovering in and around what is expected of them and not going beyond or well below, that you see uh, strong reactions. And one of the things that has just not surprised me by any means because of our history with Alec, but really impressed me is how well he has navigated this, how accountable he's been. Um, he has not shown emotion that would be in any way categorized as anything but having a, long, a really strong character. And that gives us an incredible amount of conviction and confidence for what's ahead for him. What will he need to do for him to return here? What specifically will yeah. he need to kind of um, show you? I know I know it's difficult for, um, you know, maybe some, maybe not some, uh, to when they hear the consistency within a delivery and mechanics and what that means for the results and the outcome. But it is so subtle and so small that patterns create. And if the wrong pattern starts to create, making that adjustment while competing can become too difficult. So I think getting him out of the most competitive environment in the world and allowing for him to create a new pattern closer to the one he had in previous years is what needs to occur. And having the resources we have in Dunedin having the resources we have in people. I am confident with his accountability and conviction to do so that he will write the ship. Does the fact that you guys sent him all the way down to uh, the complex league kind of suggest that this is a, going to be a lengthy process um, and something that you also wanted him to do well away, well far away from as much pressure as possible? I, I, think, it, I think it depends. I think that, you know, talking about the pattern and how long that takes him to get back to it, it could happen very quickly um, you know there with the lab that we have we'll be able to um, in our view sync it a bit quicker and study it better more effectively than we would be able to in Buffalo um, as in terms of the length I, I think that it really is just going to be dependent upon how quick that uh, that adjustment happens and not having to get the Houston Astros out um, or the Minnesota Twins out will help. What did or didn't he do this offseason that put himself in this position? I, I, I don't I don't think it comes down to something he didn't do. I think it's it's back to so subtle and how that pattern has created that wasn't allowing him, you know, you know, not to get too specific. In my view, everything works off of your fastball, so uh, not allowing him to create the consistency around that fastball command uh, because of where he was with 
everything starts from the ground, and then once he got to his release point, it just wasn't as consistent as in years past. Um, and you know, I think you know he's a better person to talk to about slight adjustments that happened over the course of his offseason, um, but nothing significant or major that gave us reason for concern, or we would have caught it. Is, um, this is going further down the road, but is there a possibility if you know Ryu's ready to go and you would go to a six-man rotation if Alec comes back, or are you looking that far ahead? Or? Yeah, I think that's that's further ahead than we'd like to be, um, but we'll you know we'll see. I think there's a lot of different things we could do with off days. There's you know we've had so much stability and Jose Barrios and Chris Bassett and Kevin Gossman. You say has been more than effective. Um, so I think with those four, we're in a really strong position to complement with some length alternatives that we have. Uh, we may be to shake, may be able to shake up the rotation a little bit with the off days, um, where we don't have to uh, use a spot start or have a traditional fifth starter for an extended period of time. But, but we have the goal to have that happen, where we have a very strong five-man rotation. But I think going towards a six-man was based on our schedule of at least over the next month is unlikely. Are you looking uh, outside the organization at all? I presume yeah. there's probably not a time. Yeah, we've, we've always, we, we always do, and we have, um, you know, intensified those discussions over the last several weeks. Ross, when you get a newsworthy situation like the Anthony Lucas situation, can you walk us through how the team decides to handle that from a communications and PR perspective? Yeah, the first step was for myself and you know John Schneider was obviously involved to handle it with Anthony Bass and just expressing how disappointed and how angry we were. Um, and then the second step is is thinking through um, you know as a group with our leadership group with our PR team, obviously with the leaders of the organization on um, how to take the next best step. Across the um, given how. Well, you guys know Alec. Uh, how much of his uh, problems on the mound are, in your estimation, mental compared to physical? Well, Griff, how much of your struggle putting is mental versus physical? <laughs> it's such a difficult thing. I, you know, it's such a difficult thing to to truly know. If we knew the answer to that. Um, you know, we would not lose baseball games ever. You know, that is that is the the nuanced sport that we all love. And um, which one comes first, confidence or success? And mental impacting physical is definitely a real thing. Um, I I think in the case of Alec, it was the delivery more than the confidence. So I think the delivery impacted. The confidence second, but um, you know, I <clears throat> again, I'd say all things except the first time. Have you ever seen a successful major leaguer go through his career without setbacks like this? <laughs> uh, uh, probably, but they're few and far between. You know, there are there are a couple. You know, over the last 35 years of being pretty in tune with Major League Baseball, that really don't have significant setbacks, but aren't many. And you know, he will overcome it. How do you think, um, or do you think, that the pitch clock at all um, affected Alex's struggles? Yeah, I think some, but not not to a major extent. Um, you know, I think if you can visualize, and I'm sure that you can, but maybe for some fans to visualize how much 
he would slow himself down in really big moments and control the pace of the game as a strength of his, that became something that he couldn't deploy. Ross, are you sending him down to the complex to kind of identify issues to fix, or do you guys have a pretty good It's just idea? the best It's the best resources that we have. We've, we've identified an opportunity, and I think those resources will help expedite that. Ross, is it fair to say that he won't necessarily pitch every five days in game situations that he's down there? Yeah, I, th I think we will. The first step is to get into that facility, and we won't um, you know, have him pitching in a game what would that be, two days from now or three days from now? But we do want to keep that workload built up that as soon as we're starting to see that new pattern closer to the pattern that was so successful that we can hit go. So, so would the last step be a couple of starts in Buffalo? We'll work through that with him. Um, you know, hopefully it's not a couple. You know, hopefully it's shorter than that, but you know, the potential of that is, is certainly realistic. In the course of the next couple months, as you guys prepare for the trade deadline, um, what's your assessment of where your team is at offensively, as far as the ability to produce runs, do things? Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such an exciting team, at least for me to think about, because I still feel like we haven't hit our stride. I feel like our offense can be a locomotive that would just be unstoppable, and we haven't been that yet. Um, so hopefully, we'll be that in July and August, and I think that potential is real. So um, it's not. For lack of effort, it's not you know. They're, it's a selfless group. Like they're, they're they are committed to having a team approach and it being a team focused offense. And once once our bats start to link, um, I think that's when we'll see us pushing pitchers out of games sooner and being really stressful on the bulk of the industry. With Vladdy, especially, where do you see maybe areas of improvement where he can improve? Vladdy, you just you know, it, it could be it's you know there, the snap of a finger for him where, um, you know, it, it it's such a fine motor skill and he's so talented that uh, you know I, I I don't worry. So what what I see every time he comes to the plate is I still see fear, and you know I know that he is going to be a force for this team. Any explanation for some of his fear from the pitchers? Yeah. Um, for some of his um, home struggles, specifically hitting home runs here, he doesn't have one yet. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, that's back to the mental, yeah. you know, part. And is there some of that in there? I think he cares so much and loves being here so much. So, is there the potential of him trying to, you know, put the team on his back and this city he's so proud to play for? Does he feel some? Um, heightened expectation of himself, you know, it's a, again, it's something to talk to him about. Do you think um, your team, I think they've been hitting more home runs lately, do you kind of, uh, that's maybe been slow to come, do you kind of expect more of a power surge from the team as the, I guess, I think history would suggest that, um, you know, also the schedule that we've had and pitching that we saw early, but uh, it's not going to get, quote unquote, easy um, by any means, and we're in, you know, a good bit way through this 30 for 31, 30 out of 31, uh, 30 games out of 31 days stretch uh, that I think we'll benefit from. But I'm so impressed with how these guys have handled everything today. Has Alec arrived in Dunedin yet? And, and what's sort of the minimum time you think that he would be there? He, he's traveling there today. I believe he is there uh, already. I'm not sure if he's actually in our facility right now. Um, you know, the minimum time, again, like I, 
I, I don't want to put a concrete timeline on any of it, but I would expect it to be a couple of turns through our rotation at a minimum. Is Sam um, Ryu down there now, and do you think he'll be able to help at all? It's a, there's a great group there, you know, Chad Green as well. There's I feel so good about the staff that's down there, and Corey Popham and Frank Herman. Um, Paul Quantrill is going to join them down there as well. And David Howell's going to be coming and going. We're going to have, I'm going to go myself. We're going to have a, a good number of our staff that is here ensure that the work that has already occurred is communicated and transitioned well into his plan and program there, and we're going to do that with a physical presence. So um, you feel good about our plan, and now I, I think the thing I'm the most excited about for Alec is just how committed he is to the plan and having some clarity around um, some steps that we can take. Ross, is there, you mentioned you'd identified a couple things to for, confirm at the lab. Uh, but in terms of the new patterns we're creating, is there some physical factor, be it wear and tear from the workload, uh, some sort of injury that he's been fighting through that led to the creation of the different patterns, or a piece to this beyond just preparing his delivery that he has to go through to get back to where he needs to be physically? Nothing that we can pinpoint or we would have otherwise addressed. Can you, can you just mention a few steps beyond sort of confirming uh, in the lab, kind of what he wants to do. What what's beyond that for Alec? Well, it's sticking to the things he was doing here, and the uh, you know everyone's routine adjust based on where they are in their career and based on where they are in the season. Um, this will allow us to adjust his routine somewhat, um, given that he's not having to go out there every fifth day, as I said before. And I think we'll look to double down on areas where we can maximize mobility and maximize opportunity within his delivery. Ross, do you feel it's important for you to meet face-to-face -face with Alec and give him direction and reassurance? No, I, I don't feel like me, uh, I feel like John Schneider and Pete Walker are the guys to do that, but I will, and I'm always available to him and care about him deeply. Okay. Thank you, All right, there is uh, Toronto Blue Jays general manager Ross Atkins. A lot uh, to get to coming off of that. Uh, yeah, starting with the Anthony Bass situation. He did meet with uh, Pride Toronto executive director Sherwin Modest. Uh, there's a story on sportsnet.ca written by Shai Davidi today. And uh, Ross Atkins also saying we'd have a very different outcome if, in fact, he believed that there was no additional steps taken by Anthony Bass to uh, address the reposting of an Instagram story to his personal Instagram account as we head towards Pride Weekend for the Toronto Blue Jays. And then as far as Alec Manoa is concerned, for the first time in my accounting of the situation, we have an admission that at least the pitch clock might be impacting what has happened with Alec Manoa. Everybody's kind of just brushed it off as, no, not the deal, entirely separate. And it's not a conditioning issue that Ross Atkins is 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 saying is related to the pitch clock with Alec Manoa. He's saying that the the best part of Alec Manoa or one of the, the great attributes about him in previous years and the first two years he's had in the Major Leagues of Baseball, one, uh, one season, his first one starting in May, second one full year as one of the best pitchers in all of baseball, top five American League Cy Young Award candidate, is during big moments, guy could slow himself down. He could take a breather. He could make sure his head was in the game. He could take a moment. He could control the tempo, and that's just 
not at his disposal anymore, which is a big deal. But yeah, obviously there's there's not a total acknowledgement of what's physical, what's mental. There is an acknowledgement that there is some lack of consistency with the delivery. But And we'll talk to Buck Martinez after the break about uh, the similarities and and differences between this situation and the 2001 Roy Halladay situation. They're trying to get Alec Manoa to a place that he's already been, right? Alec Manoa has already been there. They're just trying to get him back to the last two years, trying to get that delivery consistent with the one they've seen for over 40 starts in the major leagues of baseball. Roy Halladay, they're trying to find some new thing. That's not what's happening here. We know he's capable of being one of the best starters in major league baseball. I have relatively high level of confidence that he can get back to doing that uh, and we'll do it in Dunedin apparently also arriving today-ish it, it you know Hunjin Ryu and him seem to have like a real buddy-buddy relationship could be a real positive that 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 he's down there as well as Chad Green trying to work their way back from their respective Tommy John surgeries uh, so there's lots to get to and then he called the offense locomotive that he, when it's at its best it's gonna be chugging along won't be able to knock it off the tracks I suppose Maybe it's like, yeah, one of those like high-speed rail locomotives. Locomotive still feels like slow. That feels like Alejandro Kirk is involved if we're talking about a locomotive. But anyways, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Alec Manoa. Plenty more with our next guest, Buck Martinez, down at Rogers Center as we get you set for the finale of this four-game series between the Blue Jays and Houston Astros. It's the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. What can't Chris Bassett do? I mean, pitches under a, a time crunch where he's got to get home to his wife who's about to give birth and goes seven and two-thirds scoreless innings against the New York Mets. Comes in after his child is born to, to get his side session in, and then his next start almost goes the route. Um, fewer than 80 pitches to go eight innings, giving up two earned runs, picking up his seventh victory of the season yesterday. And again, that was played in under two hours and five minutes against the Houston Astros. Let's go down to uh, Roger Center right now and talk to uh, Buck Martinez. How's it going, Buck? Man, it's going well. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Um, Chris Bassett gave Blue Jays fans a bit of a scare right out of the gate. Like his first start of the season, people wondered what they were signing up for. But ever since then, all, although I should say, yeah, his first inning in his next start when he was having the uh, the pitch calm issues uh, was also frightening. But ever since then, he's looked absolutely the part. Um, were you expecting what we've seen so far to Chris Bassett this season? Yes, I was. Um, you know, I, I checked with a lot of other people around baseball that known him better than I did. And, and in particular, Matt Chapman. Matt was his teammate in Oakland, of course, and he was uh, raving about the competitor that uh, Chris Bassett is, and we've seen that now dramatically. Uh, you know what? He's a guy, and, you know, he throws eight pitches, and I ask him how he developed so many pitches. He says because the other ones weren't getting anybody out. Mm -hmm. So he's a guy that knows that uh, if you're going to compete, you have to be uh, – 
adaptable. You have to make adjustments, and uh, he can make adjustments on the fly, man. He can really pitch. Yeah, he can. Um, and Jose Barrios looks to be all the way back. Kevin Gossman has been Kevin Gossman, and, and certainly Yusei Kikuchi has been serviceable. Obviously, Alec Manoa has uh, stubbed his toe uh, pretty significantly early on in the season, and we hope and expect to see him back at some point this season. But considering how, how those other four starters have looked, w would you still, even without Alec Manoa in the major leagues right now, would you still consider the Blue Jays' rotation a strength? Oh, absolutely. When you look at how many innings the rotation has given you, I, I think that's a pretty good indication of how good they are. And, yeah, Alec has had, had a rough start to his season. But, you know, uh, and Bassett said this when uh, he was first acquired. He says, our job as starters is to pitch a lot of innings and take the lure code off the bullpen. Because, uh, as we saw last year with this Houston Astros team, in the postseason, if you have a strong bullpen, you have a real good chance of going deep into the postseason. And Bassett's aware of that, so is Gosman. So when they take them on, they uh, anticipate to pitch seven, eight, maybe even nine innings every once in a while. So that really helps out the manager. And, uh, yeah, you know what, I still think it's a strength. Uh, you know, Barrios had the hiccup last year, mm -hmm. and now he's back to where he has been throughout his career. And Kikuchi, uh, he's been terrific. He's uh, been much better than advertised. And if he's your fifth starter, you're in pretty good shape. Uh, Buck, we just heard uh, General Manager Ross Atkins talk about what, what they're expecting Alec Manoa to work on in Dunedin and what exactly is going wrong. And he talked about maybe some inconsistencies in the delivery, but also did reference the, the pitch clock in, in, in reference to big moments in the last couple of years for Alec when he's been able to slow it down, step off the rubber, really collect his thoughts, take a deep breath, and, and that's no longer a tool in his tool belt. How, how, how impactful do you think that that actually is, and, and how much of an adjustment will that take for him to, to know that he can no longer do that? I don't think it has an impact whatsoever. Hmm. I, I just don't think that's an issue. Uh, I think everybody's adjusted effectively to it, and I don't think it had anything to do with what he has been through this part of the season. I think he's doing anything. He's created some bad habits in his delivery that have not allowed him to be consistent with his fastball in the strike zone. And if you can't command your fastball, you can't pitch. Uh, everything else is set up by your fastball consistency. And when you don't have that ability to throw strikes with your fastball, nothing else matters because they won't swing at your breaking balls when you don't throw enough strikes with your fastballs. So, yeah, obviously you've been on the station the last couple of days talking about, yeah, being the manager at the time that Roy Halladay was sent down in uh, the spring of 2001 to totally remake his delivery and, and do something he had never done before. Alec Manoa has been a very successful starting pitcher in the major leagues of baseball. And, and you know, Ross also mentioned this, that he's just trying to get back to doing what he's doing. Is that one of the, the major differences between what Alec Manoa is going to go through over the next whatever days and weeks and, and, and comparing it to the Roy Halladay situation that there is a body of work uh, uh, that suggests he's capable of, of being a high quality major league pitcher. Oh, absolutely. I think Roy and uh, Alec are totally different situations, and uh, they were different people, they're different personalities, and uh, it was much different when we made the move with Roy. I, I think you're right, and, you know, Alec was an all-star. He uh, stuck out three in the all-star game. He finished third in the Cy Young, so he has a track record. It is in there. There's no question about it. What he has to do, he has to look in the mirror and recognize what he's doing differently that doesn't allow him to be that pitcher that we saw the first two years. And I think that's the biggest thing, to step away. And you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what. There is one similarity with Holiday and, and Manoa. I think you want to take them out of the spotlight. Hmm. And you don't want them to be numbers-oriented. You don't want them to worry about the other team's lineup. You want them to get back to who they are. And I think this atmosphere will help Alec as well.
All right, you you brought up the the All Star game and Alec Manoa being a a former All Star. Uh, I think there's more than uh, one All Star on this Blue Jays team, and enjoyed the discussion about Bo Bichette on the broadcast the last couple of days. He's been spectacular. It's it's fuck. It was not that long ago. This guy was was bumped down to seventh in the order. It was August of last season. Basically, since that point, though, he's been one of the best hitters in baseball. What what, what has happened to to Bo Bichette to your eye? Bo is. Uh back to who he was as a kid, back to who he was when he got into pro ball. He is uh, playing with uh, a lot of joy, playing with a lot of confidence, and he doesn't play by the numbers. He just goes out there with a game plan of trying to figure out how he can hit the ball hard, no matter where it's pitched, no matter what pitch it is, and uh, he has gotten away from worrying about trying to please everybody about being a perfect hitter. Nobody's a perfect hitter, but Bo is uh, among the best in baseball, and he's going to continue to be a great hitter, but I think Last September, and, uh, you know, he and uh, John Snyder talked about the move into the seventh spot, and Bo said, you know what, I'm going to stop stop trying to please everyone else, and I'm going to try to just be myself, and I don't know. And he says, I know that nobody can be perfect in this game, and I'm going to stop trying to be perfect. Well, when you say trying to please uh, everyone else, does that mean, like, is that is that, hey, having an approach where I take 100 walks a season that he was never going to be that guy? Like, what are we talking about specifically when you when you talk about trying to please everybody Absolutely. else? Absolutely. Talking <laughs> about, well, you can't hit this pitch, so don't swing at it, and you have to walk more, and you have to get more ground balls. And nobody has, nobody can tell you how to do things. And I think the one thing that the analytical world doesn't understand is that if it was so easy, they would just produce ball players in the lab. You can't do that. It's a human that you're dealing with, and human has reactions, and he feels pressure, and he reacts in different situations, and he deals with a lot of things. It is not a science; it is an art. And I think Bo understands that it's an art. Sometimes you're going to get hits when you look funny, and sometimes you're going to hit line drives that go right at people, and that's why we haven't seen the hitters hit 400 like Ted Williams did in 1941. It's a hard game. And you have to understand there's a lot of failure in the game. And when you can accept that, that's when you're going to be the best player that you can be. Uh, Brandon Belt had a bunch of failure early this season. Now he's had a bunch of success. And you were on it talking about the sliders and, and too many of them. And, and him having a, a slider speed bat yesterday ends up um, costing the Astros in, in the form of a, a, a tying home run uh, into deep right field. How would you approach him if, if you're in opposition? Would I mean, he, he's not exactly, you know, 25 anymore. He's 35. W- would you not be trying to, to beat him with velocity right now? Yeah, and, and that's what uh, you would think. I mean, the, the numbers suggest that. And even the uh, double he hit here a couple nights ago was a first-pitch curveball. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he stayed back ahead of the left field. So, yeah, I mean, that's the first place I would go, and that's the first thing we always do with guys when you're trying to figure out what to do with them is try to throw fastballs to them and see how they react to it, and then you make your judgments according to how they react. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I would try. And uh, right now he's in a good spot. But once again, he's had a track record. Mm -hmm. So as long as he's healthy, and we know he's healthy now, that he's going to get back to some semblance of who he has been throughout his career. Yeah, and Dalton Varsho has a track record as well. He's won, well, I mean, one season, essentially. One full season last year in Arizona where he hit 27 home runs and was an above-average offensive player, a great defender, of course, in center field. So I, I imagine getting out of the slump that he started the season in would have been at least a little bit more mentally difficult for him uh, considering it's a brand-new team. But what, what what have you seen out of him offensively that's that's fueled the surge recently? 
Better pitch selection, better uh, patience at the plate. He's not chasing. He's not trying to hit all of the pitches. He understands it only takes one good pitch to hit in each at bat. And he's not chasing as much anymore. And I think that's uh, a big key. And the one thing that we have to remind ourselves, too, he doesn't have 1,200 at bats yet in the big leagues. Yeah. So, you know, he's relatively inexperienced. So uh, we've got to give him some time to grow. He's learning a new team. He's learning a new league and a whole bunch of new pitchers. So there's a lot of things going on that he has to get comfortable with, but I think he's in a good spot right now. He's not in the lineup tonight with Framber Valdez on the mound, but uh, I'm, I'm very, very confident that Dalton's going to continue to improve offensively and be a big part of this team. Yeah, and defensively, he's been everything the Blue Jays expected out of him. In fact, the Blue Jays' outfield defense, uh, which was a major area of uh, of addition this offseason, has been the best in baseball as far as defensive runs saved is concerned. It's It's on pace to be maybe the best in franchise history. And so much of the, the focus when things weren't going well was was the lack of offense. But how impactful, I mean, in the ninth inning was pretty impactful last night when Kevin Kiermeyer makes a sliding catch uh, coming in uh, to, to save uh, the potential tying run being scored. But how impactful on a day-to-day basis uh, has the outfield defense been for this Blue Jays team? Well, I'll tell you what, when the infield makes errors, it prolongs innings. When the outfield makes errors, it loses games. Yep. And the outfit has been terrific. They've only committed one error all year long, and they've done a great job. And I think, uh, you know, and when you have a good outfit like that, pitchers pitch with a lot of confidence. They want a ball put in play. And, of course, our infield defense has been good as well with Chapman and Bo on the left side and uh, Merrifield or uh, whoever Espinal is playing there tonight. And glad he's been good at first base. So the defense has improved all over the field. But I think uh, the biggest thing is that uh, the outfield defense is really tightened up. Kevin Kiermaier, we knew, was going to be a star in center field. And I think uh, he's been a pleasant surprise with the bat as well. Uh, before I let you go, Buck, I, I, I'm, I'm curious um, your take on this this Jose Bautista tax situation. I, I, you, we don't need to get into the weeds in it, but it's essentially Jose Bautista and the Canadian Revenue uh, Agency are battling it out in court over money that they believe that they're owed. Uh, he believes was sheltered properly through some retirement fund. Just broadly, when, when, and the Blue Jays have done pretty well in free agency. Chris Bassett, of course, and, and George Springer before him, and Hunjin Ryu. But how much of a conversation is it when when these players are being sold on playing for the Blue Jays, playing in Canada, that there are certain ways that they can, you know, it, it not uh, hand over as much as as we all assume they will in taxes? Like, how much of a conversation is is the tax thing for, frankly, for free agents around Major League Baseball? Well, I don't know anything about Jose's situation with Revenue Canada at all, but I know that uh, when I was coming to Canada, I certainly uh, investigated all of the ramifications and all my responsibilities and uh, had a tax lawyer in Toronto and a tax lawyer in the United States, and we all addressed it, and it's uh, never been an issue as far as I know. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see how this one shakes out. But, yeah, it could be a, a big story going forward. Buck, uh, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, and enjoy the game. All right, Ben, good to be with you. You have a great night. All right, you too. There's Buck Martinez. So, yes, the, the story which I tweeted out on my Twitter at Sportsnet Ben uh, is on Sportsnet.ca as well because uh, Elliot Friedman brought it up on the uh, Jeff Merrick show today. It's a big one. So, essentially, it goes down like this. Jose Bautista, like every other, I guess, professional athlete that plays north of the border, who is a non-citizen, they're they're looking for every loophole, right? Legal loophole. 
it appears that there is a a fund, which is not like a, a registered retirement fund, but it is a retirement fund in which you can put your money if you're a professional athlete, which is self, uh, sheltered from taxes, you pay a lower tax rate, you can get that money back when you retire. What's being argued in court, to my eyes, again, I ain't no accountant, I just read the story, is that Revenue Canada says, well, that's not really a retirement fund because there's no real rules about it. And in fact, you took out like 90% of it a couple of years after you were a member of the Toronto Blue Jays. We want more. Now, apparently there's also court proceedings either underway or about to be underway between Josh Donaldson and Revenue Canada and Russell Martin and Revenue Canada. And there's this thought that this could be precedent setting or at least send a message to potential free agents, not in major league, not just in major league baseball, but across all the professional sports that are played in Toronto for non-citizens that holy cow, when you sign up for these teams and hey, make no doubt about it, that when Chris Bassett was sold on the city of Toronto and this Blue Jays team, yeah, it was part of, hey, you're going to play at a brand new ballpark. It's a great facility. We're going to pack the joint. We have a chance to win, yada, yada, yada. We're going to pay you what you deserve. But also, everything you've heard about Canadian taxes, it's, yes, it's a higher rate, although you're coming from New York State. So, yeah, it's not like you're coming from a state with no state taxes. But when you come to Toronto, we're going to put you in a situation and we're going to put your money in a place that is going to allow you to keep most of it or, or more than you would have thought. If Jose Bautista loses this thing, maybe that changes. Maybe the whole math on, on selling future free agents on the city of Toronto changes. What I posed on Twitter, it's really, this is, this is where it gets really interesting, is you as a citizen that pays taxes, all the taxes that you're supposed to pay, I hope. Goodness gracious, I hope you're a good citizen. You pay all your taxes like good little boys and girls. Um, would you be okay with a professional athlete in the city of Toronto paying a lower tax rate than they should to entice more professional athletes to come to the city of Toronto. Now, there is a, a comparable here, right? There's businesses all over this country that have been enticed to be here or come here through tax credits. And somebody alerted me to a story that happened just in April. Volkswagen, like billions of dollars in tax breaks over the next decade or so. And without that, maybe we're not seeing a Volkswagen battery plant and factory being built in Ontario. If the pro athletes in the city don't get the tax breaks that they think they are deserved and are in accordance with the law. Maybe they're not likely to sign here. Maybe the next Chris Bassett says, thanks, but no thanks. But, you know, like, there's somewhere else I can, I can play that, that has an equally good chance of making the playoffs and I'll be able to save 20% more of my salary. Is it worth it to you? I, I, listen, I'll tell you what it is. I, I'll say it is worth it to me but I have skin in the game, right? Sports are 
my livelihood. Uh, it's also something I enjoy watching. It's part of my entertainment. It, and in part, because it is part of my, what I do for entertainment, there's a correlation to my mental health. Now, there's many people who don't watch sports. If you don't watch sports and sports are not a part of your life at all, why on earth would you want Jose Bautista skirting tax law that you, hardworking Canadian, have to pay in whatever the rate is and you don't have the best tax lawyers in the world? Why on earth would you want Jose Bautista to save one extra penny than, than he has to? But, uh, oh, okay. We have some uh, breaking Toronto Maple Leafs news. Let's go to producer Mike Gentile. Ben, I hate to cut you off, but this seems like a big one. What's that? Kevin Weeks reports, I'm told the Maple Leafs are naming Shane Doan as an assistant to Brad Tree Living. All right, that's really interesting. That's a big one. The Nyes-Matthews <laughs> connection. Okay, so there's a, significant. Uh, there's a two-parter here, and I know we got a break, but uh, th th we're obviously going to follow this story up. So uh, behind the curtain... Producer Mike Gentile and myself have been trying to get Shane Doan on the radio. We had him on during the playoff run when Matthew Nyes was making his Toronto Maple Leafs debut, uh, and he has ghosted us for a little bit. Uh, I think we know why. I mean, this is very, very interesting. All right, more on that. Uh, maybe we'll get to it with John Morosi next of MLB Network and NHL Network as we get set for uh, Blue Jays and Astros tonight down at Rogers Center. It's fan drive time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Blair and Barker coming away at 5 o'clock. And then uh, Blue Jays baseball. Blue Jays and Houston Astros at 7 o'clock. Framber Valdez against Jose Barrios. In case you just missed it, breaking the end of last hour, according to Kevin Weeks, former Arizona Coyote, former Winnipeg Jet, Shane Doan is set to become an assistant to new Toronto Maple Leafs general manager Brad Treliving. That's interesting. From a number of different perspectives. I mean, the most obvious is that the Maple Leafs have pretty uh, pretty valuable character who's open or who is uh, eligible now for a contract extension, 60-goal scorer in Austin Matthews, who is, uh, oh, yeah, from Arizona and knows Shane Doan rather well. Does this grease the skids? Uh, we'll find out uh, in the coming days, I suppose. Let's talk to our pal, John Morosi, MLB Network, NHL Network. How's it going, John? I'm doing outstanding. And uh, one more little note uh, that links Shane Doan to the current Leafs roster. Mm -hmm. Do you know who he coached with the Arizona Junior Coyotes? I mean, Austin Matthews, I'm, I'm going to guess. Matthew Nyes. Matthew Nyes. Matthew Nyes and Josh Doan, his son, are very, very close friends indeed. Yeah. Uh, and, but, yeah, uh, Matthew Nyes ain't going anywhere. I mean, it would be nice to uh, have a familiar face in the organization, I'm sure. Like... Yeah, John, this this uh, 
doesn't always work out. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, if you were a betting man, like, would, wouldn't this be a pretty good indication that the, the franchise is trying to cozy up to the, the franchise superstar? I think that's part of it, potentially. I also think that Shane Doan has deserved this. Uh, when you look at the, the executive roles that he's had, and obviously, who knows what the future of, of the NHL is in Arizona at this point in time, so there's a lot of uncertainty there. And I, I think Shane has been a part of Team Canada on a number of occasions. He was one of the leaders, of course, of the Olympic team in 2022. Uh, he's been involved in building a lot of World Championships rosters over the years. He's been a very trusted voice on, in terms of personnel decisions with the Coyotes. And you think about how they've really relied on a lot of their youth and Clayton Keller and the, and the leaps that Clayton has taken in his career. So I, I think that, yes, one of the defining NHL players of his era someone who is universally respected in the game, someone who, yes, has a very good relationship with Austin Matthews. But I think to a, to a broader extent, he deserves this. And mm-hmm. Shane Doan has put in his time and I think built a really strong resume as an NHL executive with Hockey Canada too. So uh, congratulations to, to Shane. And I think it was a very strong hire by Brad Living. Yeah, and a and, uh, guy that Brad knows pretty well as well, going back to his time as an assistant general manager in Arizona. I'm sure that's where the relationship was forged and, and, and a big part of um, his uh, being brought on. Uh, again, w- nothing official yet, but it's Kevin Weeks with the report. He's pretty good with uh, with those reports, so uh, I'm, I'm buying that whole cloth. Um, all right, to baseball now. We're zoning in on the All-Star game. We're just over a month away, and 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 all the the advertisements are on the field and in the ballpark as far as voting in your Toronto Blue Jays uh, players, um, by your estimation, how many Blue Jays are all stars? Because I got, I got Bo and Matt Chapman and Kevin Gossman as, as pretty much locks, but but maybe some more outside of that. I, who do you think is a, an all star on this Blue Jays team? Sure, I would say those three for certain. Uh, I think that you might still be able to. I know he's not having a great year, but uh, Vlad will have a lot of competition at first base. Uh, but certainly, big name, and he's he's got some all-star and derby credentials as well. So I think we have to keep him in mind. I, I would say the guy who pitched last night is very much in that conversation and Chris yeah. Bassett. Uh, I, I love the way he pitches and I, I love the insight that he has. He is one of the most eloquent people that we've got in the sport in terms of talking about uh, the, the art of, of pitching and how he's made a lot of really important modifications. I heard an interview he did recently with uh, with MLB Network Radio talking about how a subtle move of his foot on the rubber. He used to be a very much on the first base side uh, last year with the Mets, then late in the season his mechanics got away from him a little bit, and he adjusted his foot position, and it opened up everything. Hmm. And I think that when you consider Chris Bassett, he's not someone that throws 99. Um, he's someone that's been you know, sent to the minor leagues before. He's had elbow surgery before. Um, I think that his... His success is a, is a very strong example. As we talk about the Jays and big picture, I'm sure we'll get into Manoa and his status. But it's a good example for Alex because Chris has had to think about different ways to get it done. He's never had the super overpowering stuff, but his command is excellent. His ability to spin the ball is excellent. And I, I think that as, as Alec enters this new phase of his development, uh, back down to Dunedin, the, the example of Bassett, while no two pitchers are exactly the same, uh, the creativity and the, the craftsmanship that, that Chris approaches 
his pitching, I think, is really applicable to what Alec Manoa is doing right now. 100%. And you know what? Chris Bassett has been a great pitcher throughout his career. was a great pitcher for the Mets last year. It wasn't so great necessarily in that postseason start against the, the Padres, only going four innings, giving up the, the three earned runs. And I'm, I, I, listen, it, it's Alec Manoa's only one, one player. But I, I will say that one of the, the major reasons I thought the, the Blue Jays had a real shot once they got to the postseason, they have to get there, uh, so they have to turn it around a little bit, uh, as they've done in the last couple of weeks or so. But one of the reasons I had belief in this Blue Jays team when they got to the postseason was the two-headed monster at the top of the rotation in Manoa and Gossman. And maybe that that still is it holds true, and, and it's just a little blip on the radar, and, and Manoa returns this regular season, looks like the guy we saw for more than 40 starts in the first two years of his, of his career. But if he's not, John, how, how do you evaluate the Blue Jays' playoff chances with with four real good starters, I mean one excellent starter, and in Bassett's been everything they expected. But like, how do how does the removal of Alec Manoa from this rotation impact the Blue Jays' World Series chances? You know, Ben, that's an excellent question. And what I would say is this: assuming they get there, I still like this rotation of four almost as much as any other rotation in the game. One, one of the other ironies here, uh, you look around, and I still believe the best rotation one, two, three in in the American League right now belongs to a team that's not in a playoff spot right now, and that's Seattle. Look at Kirby. George Kirby is he's a lock all-star for me right now. Logan Gilbert's darn close to that. Luis Castillo is a legitimate ace. And so where I look at this is if you've got Gossman, he belongs in the all-star game for sure. He belongs in the Scion conversation. Number two, take your pick, either Barrios or, or Bassett. So whoever, whichever of those two guys do you envision as the third, there's a lot of teams in, in baseball who do not have a number three starter as good as Barrios or, or Bassett. And Kikuchi, uh, most teams, their number four starter is a, a bit of a wild card. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, with Kikuchi, he's actually pitched pretty well this season. So that this is not my concern really at all. I I worry much more about the Jays getting there mm-hmm. than I do about how their rotation would match up if they get there. I, I still think they need some work on the bullpen, but they should be able to do that. They may still need to address with, with one more bat. But it's amazing how... You know, I really think Varsho, I know the numbers don't look great overall. His quality of at-bat, I think, is still pretty solid. Brandon Belt has been excellent for the last week or so. The Jays are 6-1 and in June. And you look around this division, look at the New York Yankees and, and look at their struggles now. Cortez on the IL, Judge on the IL with very little certainty about when he's going to get back. I, I think that with that revelation with the Yankees, the Jays have to feel really good about about being able to hold strong and hold off the Yankees for, for at least third place. And then you set your sights on the, the two teams ahead of you in Baltimore and Tampa, and, and you might still be able to make the playoffs as the third-place team in the American League East. So while it's been, in a lot of ways, a disappointing start to the season, the Jays are actually in a pretty good position. The one thing I would say that they're about to get tested is – is now that Manoa is in the minor leagues, that Bowden Francis, who whoever's going to make that start, yeah, this is not a team that has an abundance of AAA pitching, Ben. No, and so so we're about to find out 
how concerned we should be. Yeah, and, and there's very few teams other than the Astros that have, like, ready-made rotations seemingly right. to come out of nowhere in AAA. But usually teams have, like, one. The Blue Jays had none, and Bowden Francis is, like, the only guy whose numbers are not atrocious, right? And, and it's, it's somebody that they traded for. Uh, he was part of the Rowdy Telez deal. This is something I asked Caitlin McGrath yesterday, uh, John, I'm interested to, to know your perspective. Like, what's a reasonable amount of minor league uh, pitching depth to have if you're a contending team because I, I think it's certainly more than the Blue Jays have which is like none but yeah if you're the Yankees and you've you lost a ton of start there's lots of teams that have been down so many starters and have been able to cope because they have a, at least a little bit of it like like what is what is an acceptable amount of minor league pitching depth to have if you expect to contend for a World Series well uh, and that's an excellent point Ben and I've, I've always said when, when I look at teams as do I believe they've got a chance to be the World Series champion? One of the things, and it's not the the coolest thing to talk about in spring training when we're when we're going over the the hierarchy of teams, optionable pitching depth. Yeah, optionable pitching depth. Now, optionable means that you can send the pitcher down to the minor leagues without exposing them to waivers. And the Jays at the moment have very little optionable starting pitching depth. You'd like to have. To answer your question more specifically, two or three credible guys mm-hmm. that you can call up. Baltimore has shown that they have that right now. Houston, to your point, has an abundance of it. Uh, I think Seattle saw, showed that with Bryce Miller and the way he's pitched since coming up. Uh, the Dodgers with Bobby Miller, I think they've shown they've got that kind of optionable depth, guys that they can call up. Atlanta has had, I think, a dozen different starting pitchers this year, which is just an extraordinarily high number that Alex Anthopoulos has had to go down and and get from AAA. That, that to me, and you don't, you don't love having to go to 10, 11 or 12 starters by the early part of June. But once you've done it, if, if the majority of those guys showed they can represent themselves well, at the major league level, now you're in really good shape and the Jays, they don't know that yet. Uh, at least not in the same way that the, that the Rays do. Look at someone like Taj Bradley, who who did not make the opening day roster for the Rays, but came up and has made some very high quality starts. There is there is not a Taj Bradley in in this Toronto organization, nor is there a a Bryce Elder who actually didn't even break camp with the team in Atlanta, but came up right away and now is going to be an All Star. So um, you're right. There's a bit of a a bit of a void there. And that is also, to me, Ben, and I think it's a really important point to really emphasize. We talk about the the bullpen, the lack of bullpen depth that in in some ways haunted the Jays last year against Seattle. But remember where your bullpen depth often comes from in the postseason. It comes from those AAA prospecting starters, or it comes from your fifth starter if you trust them with enough stuff the likes of Hunter Brown with Houston last year, who all of a sudden becomes an option out of the pen to give you a bridge in the middle of the game. That was where the Jays lost that series was in that bridge area. Of course, uh, when that lead got away and, and that to me, when I diagnose where are the Jays a little bit short, they, they're a little bit short in that whoever they're bringing in out of, out of the bullpen in the sixth or seventh inning of a playoff game, it might not have the stuff. Mm-hmm. Of the of the back end starter for Houston, for example, who is now becoming uh, an A level reliever in the postseason. 
Yeah, uh, Ricky Tiedemann's about the only guy that we can hang our hat on, and he's injured right now and hasn't pitched in, in weeks and weeks right. and weeks. But, yeah, outside of him, there's there's really not a lot going on. Uh, I just looked, and they are playing baseball in the Bronx this afternoon, uh, first game of two after yeah. yesterday was postponed in an apocalyptic-looking scene there, John, um, where was, the sky was orange. It's been bad here in, in Toronto, but not as bad as it was yesterday in New York City uh, because you're John Morosi you talked to a Harvard prof- uh, professor of environmental chemistry um, what, what did you learn right. about smoke and baseball sure well a, a couple different things first of all I am uh, I am coming to you live from from the Ohio Turnpike for that very reason I, I was uh, I was supposed to be at Yankee Stadium last night uh, and then when that game was postponed I made the executive decision uh, Midwesterner that I am I said to my bosses, okay, no game tonight. Uh, I'm just going to drive home because I'm not so sure the airports are going to function tomorrow. Yep. So I'm, I'm almost home now, but, uh, <laughs> but that's what I did. I've been driving all day. So, um, but it was, it was bizarre. Uh, I've never seen a sky like that, and, and this will sound strange, but I've, I've never tasted air like that. It was, it was so noxious that it had that, that acidic and, and really foul taste to it. It was it was nasty, Ben. And, you know, I, I, uh, the reason why, uh, full disclosure, the reason why I had emailed and shared some perspectives of some of the in, environmental uh, chemistry and, and environmental science professors there at Harvard is because that was, that was my department when I was an undergraduate there. That's what I studied. Yeah. So, uh, so basically, I mean, what I would say, and, and the, there, there certainly will be a lot of discussions about, climate change and where we're all at on probably different spots of the dial. But what I, what I will say here is that we cannot call this a one-off thing because it's yeah. not a one-off thing. Uh, as, as the climate, unfortunately, is in the place that it is, uh, when weather is drier, when wildfires happen. We saw this in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest three years ago. We're obviously dealing with it right now, and certainly uh, all of you in Canada know that very well. So, uh, unfortunately, this is now a a sad reality of where we're at. And I, I think that maybe the reason why it took baseball a while to to postpone the games yesterday, Ben, was honestly the realization that, that this is probably not the only time they're going to be faced with this decision. And, in fact, there was a game in Washington, D.C. that was postponed today. Yep. So uh, I think they're mindful, Ben, of what the standard is going to be because we all have to realize that, unfortunately, this is not the one time that we're dealing with this question about when the air is safe enough to play ball. No, it's a great, great point. Um, and, yeah, I would say that if you're building an, a new uh, Major League Baseball ballpark, uh, you should have a roof. Like, that would be a good idea, uh, considering yeah. what, what's to come here in, in the years to come. Uh, and the Blue Jays, yeah, they played baseball yesterday despite c- kind of similar conditions, although not as bad as it was in New York City. So I mentioned they're underway today against the White Sox. Great to see Liam Hendricks pick up the save the other day. That was an yeah. awesome, awesome story. Um, Yankees are, are down the biggest bat in the game. Aaron Judge. Aaron Boone was getting a little perturbed today in his uh, pregame media availability, trying to pin down a, a time frame on on his return because he, he was in a, uh, or unable to do so. Um, that's a big loss. Right. Uh, and 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 the the Yankees have been hit hard by the injury bug, but it's mostly been in the pitching department. There there have been some position players, and yeah, Josh Donaldson was one of them. But Aaron Judge, and and if, I mean this is kind of obvious, I guess, when you talk about a guy who hit sixty home runs a, a season ago. I mean, the record that the Yankees have with him and without him in the lineup is is it's it, there's a pretty big contrast there. Like, what is this Yankees team if he's forced out of the lineup for a couple of weeks? A couple of weeks 
Ben, I think they can manage. If he's out for a month and, and or if he's not the same when he comes back, and, and certainly uh, it's, it's a foot, big toe, who knows how, you know, that from the standpoint of being able to push off and how that's going to affect his power going forward. Uh, we saw DJ LeMayu last year. It basically, it was a foot issue with him, a toe issue with him that knocked him out for the rest of the season effectively. Uh, but but if, he's, if Judge is out for a month or longer or if he's not the same, they're not going to make the playoffs, period, unless something drastic happens. Their, their pitching is – when Cole's on the mound, their pitching is great. Um, the rest of the rotation, we'll see how Rodon comes back, and they believe he's going to be able to contribute. But you saw what happened in the game on Tuesday. Um, no judge, no hits through six innings. And yep. the, the one hit they got uh, to, to begin that rally should have been caught. So, Ben, they're just not the same team. To your point, they've got a losing record without judge this season. Uh, the way they play without him uh, honestly affirms – the reasons why I voted judge on top of my ballot last year for MVP is because they're not the same team without him. And, and this is where we talk about depth of lineup and we talk about depth of roster construction. The Yankees couldn't have counted on judge being out, but you know, they're going to deal with some injuries and that's a team, the Yankees that have not really had a lot of, a lot of good, solid depth one through nine. It's been very much a star focused lineup. That's why a team like Texas, to be honest with you, if I'm Toronto thinking about who I might face in the playoffs if I get there, Texas is scary because Texas Texas is the kind of lineup that you imagine the Yankees having back in the 90s. There, was, there are no easy spots. And I think Tampa's lineup is the same way right now. The Yankees' lineup is not that. I think the Blue Jays have a much better, much deeper and more diverse lineup than what the Yankees have right now. And, and – I think the reason why Boone got testy and Aaron is obviously very patient, almost always gracious with his time. Uh, former broadcaster, certainly we, we know that he's been around the game his entire life. Um, he doesn't often show any sort of uh, public displeasure with a question. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really reflective to me, Ben, of the level of frustration that they've got and that, that Aaron probably knows deep down that if number 99 is out for a while, that this this season is officially off the script, and it's hard to really say what happens next. Well, and, and this is a fluky thing. It's a toe thing. And, I mean, part of my thinking, if I was in Aaron Judge's shoes and I was offered the contract that he was offered at the beginning of last season, I would have taken it, was because of his overall injury history, right? He just happened to have two of the most healthy careers or seasons of his career in back-to-back -back seasons heading towards free agency. But this has largely, John, outside of, what, his, his rookie season, there, there's like a half decade in between that rookie season and the last two seasons in which they, this guy spent a lot of time on the injured list. And just like the, the Blue Jays could have predicted that they would have to dip a little bit into their starting pitching depth, the Yankees had to anticipate that, that this guy was not going to play the rest of his career, you know, 162 games every single day or every single year. Right, and, and that's fair. And I'm sure that was part of their calculus, Ben, and, and why they did not go above where their offer was before last season. And then when he sets the American league record, what choice did they have? And the irony is of course that the Padres offered him more money yeah. than the Yankees did. And so this, again, this is, there are cautionary tales every year in free agency. There's one in Texas right now with Jacob deGrom. 
And who knows if a year from now we're having the same conversation about Shohei. It's impossible to know. I, I think that it was – the thing about Aaron is he really takes a lot of pride in, in being available. I think he has learned a lot about his body and how to stay healthy over time to where he got to a really good place. It was interesting uh, and just unfortunate that where he injured himself at Dodger Stadium is a very – strange construction there in right field. And, and yeah. I was saying the other day where he kicked his foot at the bottom of that, uh, at that bullpen gate, it's almost like the kick plate of a hockey rink. It, it's right. a very strange, you almost never see something <laughs> like that in a baseball stadium. Yeah. And so I, it was a very fluky thing. Um, I feel terrible for him. And, and you can just tell how much this is just a, a really difficult scenario for him, for the organization. You're right. I mean, when you sign a player who's six foot seven and plays defense that aggressively, you realize that that is part of the risk assessment. And and I think that honestly, Ben, one of the reasons why Harrison Bader is so important to this team and getting him healthy again consistently is that is they realize how hard Aaron plays defense, and they don't want him running around crashing into walls. Because mm-hmm. think about it: every time a six foot seven person of his size, stature, and strength runs into something, it's an NFL collision. Yep. And I think that's what you saw at Dodger Stadium, unfortunately. Yeah, he literally broke a wall. Uh, it, was an, it was an amazing right. catch. Right. But, yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. Uh, John, thanks for this. Drive safe. I, I appreciate it. Of course, in Ohio, I've learned over my life, you got to stay right at the speed limit, especially when you're from Michigan. So I'm going to take this nice and easy, my friend, and we'll, we'll catch up soon, all right? All right. Sounds good. See you, John. Thanks, Ben. All right, it's John Morosi, MLB Network, on his way uh, home to Michigan from uh, New York City. Is there was no game to cover yesterday because sky was orange, and sky is less orange. Like it's still not good. It's a great point about hey, like okay, we're gonna bang today's game, but how much better is it gonna be tomorrow? It is better. There's no question. Not good though. Definitely not good. Uh, it's very nice and good inside Rogers Center where the roof is closed. At this moment, no word yet as to whether the Blue Jays will open it in time for game time. Game four against the Houston Astros will pass that information along once we get it. Uh, but yesterday was closed because of uh, the air quality. All right, when we come back, the RBC Canadian Open is underway. Yeah, they're, they're going to play a golf tournament this week, despite the fact that all the intrigue is off the course. Um, and wouldn't you know it, Corey Connors, the best Canadian in the field as far as world golf ranking, as far as betting odds, tied for first. And he's in the clubhouse. His first round is done. Five under 67 at Oakdale Golf and Country Club for Corey Connors. Has him tied for the lead at five under par. We don't have a comment from Corey after the game. Or after the round, he had to leave because of uh, an urgent personal matter, apparently. So hopefully everything's all good there. Um but yeah, once again, like second straight year, the RBC Canadian Open is overshadowed because of madness uh, in the overall ecosystem of professional golf. As this week, we found out that Live Tour, PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, they're all merging. Everybody's still trying to come to grips with this thing. We'll talk to uh, an eight-time winner on the PGA Tour and uh, currently a golf broadcaster for NBC, Brad Faxon. Next, as the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. 
Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I am Ben Ennis and your clubhouse leader. Not quite through one round of the RBC Canadian Open, but his round is done. Corey Connors at five under par atop the leaderboard at Oakdale Golf and Country Club. Again, the RBC Canadian Open getting overshadowed by some larger golf news as the Live Tour PGA Tour and the GP World Tour all coming together, forming a, uh, a new union that will officially get underway with whatever new format they decide to to use next season. Let's talk to uh, eight-time PGA Tour winner, the best putters of the golf ball ever, uh, currently golf broadcaster for NBC. It's Brad Faxon. Brad, thanks for doing this. Ben, my pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. This is uh, an interesting time for golf, to say the least, that, that, that civil war only lasting like less than a calendar year. If you were a player right now, and, and let, let's, I guess, maybe put you in the shoes of a PGA Tour player, how would you be feeling in the days since that announcement? Probably a little just um, surprised at the uh, the rapidness of this announcement, uh, the unexpectedness of it. I, I was away playing some golf on Monday, Tuesday, uh, where I, or Tuesday, Wednesday. I didn't really have my cell phone available. And, and I think if I had won the Masters and the U.S. Open with a chance to win the grand slam in the calendar year i would have gotten less calls than i got <laughs> in these last two days um it's uh, nothing short of remarkable yeah it's it's a it's it's like it's uh, yeah i thought when when the live tour first started that that was going to be the biggest news in in the history of pro golf but yeah less than a year later uh them coming together seems like like even bigger news you mentioned that it was a surprise to you that it was a surprise to to all the players like the 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 number of people who were in these negotiations was it seemed like it they took place over a span of about two months very very limited it feels like it was jay monahan and and very few other people um does that surprise you that 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 no players this is supposed to be a player run pga tour that no players were given the heads up or given their input on the matter so I've been a member of the PGA Tour Policy Board three different times uh, on the regular tour and once on the Champions Tour. Um, and the way our procedure worked was uh, if there was some topic that had to be discussed, uh, there was a player advisory council that had 16 members, um, and four of those members were player directors. Uh, Rory McIlroy is one of those player directors. Jordan Spieth maybe just got off, but um, there were four independent independent directors as well. But we, we know from experience that the more people that were in on, um, you know, I hate to say top secret matters, but in this case, this was pretty top secret. Uh, the less people that knew, the better chance that there weren't being any leaks. Now, um, you know, Rory being on the board, being very close to both Ed Hurley, Jimmy Dunn, and of course, Jay Monaghan, um, you know, he's gone public and talked about how he got the call from, Jimmy Dunn on 6.30 on Tuesday morning, but basically breaking the news, um, which didn't involve um, all the player directors or the advisory council. So um, 
what we don't know right now is um, the details. We don't know how all this is going to play out, iron out. Um, uh, I think Jimmy Dunn just got off uh, the news. He he was on, I think it was on Golf Channel, answering some questions. Uh, but there's no details really on the timeline of what's going to happen. I, I think there's a lot of details, Ben, that have to be worked out. I mean, what are we going to see going forward? Is there going to be a live tour? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they going to co-mingle here? Are we going to use the, the that public investment fund to help players with purses going forward? Um, I, I will say one thing, and I know I'm talking a lot right now, but I've seen a number of players that are very upset because they didn't know it was coming and that they feel like they're due something because they didn't jump to the live tour. Now, listen, um, first of all, everybody is a grown man here. They could have made their choice knowing what they knew at the circumstances at the time. Um, and one of the repercussions from live coming on was the, the giant increase in the PGA tour purses. So you got more money to play for. Um, you got stronger fields playing together more often. So I, I don't, I don't think that's the right argument. These players have right now that they potentially could have got a lot of money. Um, uh, it was especially when they said, Hey, look, I'd rather play for trophies than for dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. If that was the reasoning and yeah, and uh, I, ab- absolutely. Um, because that still remains true and you, it's true. Like, yeah, the format of this thing is so much up in the air and, you know, we saw uh, actually a, a quote attributed to a live executive, uh, today that, that he expects the live tour to continue as usual. It was also kind of curious that we did see like, in that press release that there was an indication that, that that team golf will continue, which I mean, you would, you would, you would think that's either the live tour continuing or, or part of their format being integrated into the PGA tour. But as far as like the players feeling bad, I don't, I don't feel like bad, bad for anybody because everybody's still millionaires and you're right. Like the overall pie is getting bigger and they're going to make more money than they did before. But I am, I am sort of thinking of guys like Hideki Matsuyama who turned down 300 million bucks and, you know, he wanted to stay loyal to the PGA Tour, and and the guy that told him to stay loyal, Jay Monahan, negotiated um, this this deal that undercuts all that that a potential loyalty. And then, you know, here's Matsuyama walking down a fairway maybe next year on the PGA Tour event next to Brooks Kepka. Like, I I I do think that could there could be an awkward dynamic there, Brad. Yeah, and it's it's funny. I, I think one of the most difficult things going forward uh, is, is going to see how does this play out with the players that did jump to the live tour um, is the path going to be straight back. If they do come back, are they going to have to uh, relinquish some of the, the money that they were guaranteed? Uh, the, the, the numbers I heard from Matsuyama were closer to a billion than they were to 300 million. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with his Japanese, uh, those TV rights are so strong there. Um, I, you know, again, it's, we're speculating a little bit on this. Uh, first of all, this suggested merger, if that's what you want to call it. I think that it's right now there's, there's a letter of intent, nothing signed, nothing's closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then will there be any government intervention? Is there monopolies in this? I, I mean, there's so many things that none of us know for sure. Um, and we don't know whether the PGA tour went to, um, to live or live came to the PGA tour, or they just figured, Hey, look, we're going to be battling out for a long time. 
Uh, it's really, really hard to tell. Yeah, the Department of Justice apparently looking this thing over. Brad, when when you became a golf broadcaster and, you know, when you were a pro- professional golfer and still are on the Champions Tour, did you ever think that you'd have to be wading into the geopolitical waters and the, the legal waters as much as you have over the last year and a bit? So when when I first got on the policy board for the first time in the early 90s is when Tim Fincham took over from Dean Beeman. And one of the things I realized was, you know, the PGA Tour has always had a tax-exempt yes. um, organization, a 501c6 it's called. And that was for the, the tournament side of the PGA Tour. And and we had a, and have one of the greatest pensions in professional sports. Um, that we, we spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., lobbying to keep that tax-exempt structure so that uh, the title sponsors, um, the longtime title sponsors, could keep deducting that money while they presented golf on television. And, and a lot of it was because the product um, gave back so much money to charities to each and every one of the cities that they visited. So uh, that was unlike many of the other sports. And I, I think if I had to guess um, something along those lines, the, the PGA tour was maybe thinking their status would be jeopardized um, millions and millions of dollars was spent on the nego- and the legal fees already. I've heard rumors up to $50 million by mm. the PGA tour. Um, and frankly, um, when the PGA tour had to react and come up with these 17 or 18 designated events at uh, purses that were two, three X, um, was that financially viable? Did the sponsors kind of come through and say, Hey, listen, this is really hard for us to maintain at this pace. Um, but I, I think at the same time, the live had a lot of problems with them. I mean, obviously unlimited pockets, but um, they had several very, very good players, but they, they didn't have much visibility um, viewership. Uh, so, I mean, I think this is going to end up being good for both. Um, there's going to be a lot of talk, like you said, about the politics of the country of Saudi Arabia versus um, maybe other countries. Uh, and why are we doing this? Uh, just like I said, a lot remains to be seen. Yeah, uh, and Jay Monahan specifically, Brad, uh, and we played the clip yesterday of him on on Golf Channel trying to you know justify the comments he made last year at the RBC Canadian Open, where he invoked the names of the families of the victims of 9/11 who so greatly opposed players joining the Live Tour because of its 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 Saudi backed um, ownership there, and then a year later. You know, he has to explain away those comments, which he's obviously incapable of doing. There was also this report that there was a players-only meeting at the Canadian Open, and players were uh, pretty angry. <laughs> I think that the, the word was steamy in the room between Jay Monahan and, and the players. How how do you think this this leadership is is going to shake itself out, especially if there are players that are that are extremely angry about one not being involved in the discussions and and to the way that the, that this has gone and maybe the, the 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 things that they were sold on uh, so i, I got to come back up a while and say jay monahan is a, is a long time and dear and very close friend of mine so i'm very monahan biased and he actually was mm-hmm. my agent as when he worked for the boston red sox uh back in the 90s and early 2000s and he's got a great sports marketing background. He worked at the Deutsche Bank Championship for the CEO of the PGA now, Seth Waugh. Uh, tremendous background in, in all the professional golfers. And 
I, I think you could you could easily watch how uncomfortable he was answering those questions uh, because he had very close, you know, being a Boston guy, very close friends that were killed in the accident that landed in Pennsylvania on that plane. Um, and obviously was very close with Jimmy Dunn, whose, you know, office got smashed in 9-11 by the first jet. So, I mean, he he's very sympathetic to what he said. He he's it's It's a hard hold to climb out of um people are calling for his neck to resign i, I mean i think there's so many things that uh, have to be brought out now i said to jay uh last night through text that i just think you've got to be open with the communication tell the players how this happened be honest with it um and you know hopefully he's he's able to do that whether it's one-on-one with each player uh, or, or more meetings. And like you said, at the start of our little interview, I mean, it's taken a lot of the meat out of what's going on up in Canada with your national championship. And it's going to continue on next week to the U S open as well. Yeah. There, there's no question about it. And then, you know, wrapping around to, to the Ryder cup in the fall, uh, an event that you've been a part of twice. And it, and I would imagine that the, the uh, American live golfers and Brooks Kepka in particular are, are going to be able to participate. The, the Europeans though, apparently not like a, a Apparently, the, the banned ones from the the DP World Tour will not be able to be reinstated in time to participate on that Ryder Cup team. I mean, does does that surprise you? I mean, it's it's a pretty big advantage if if they're they're you know there's no Martin Kime. There's like a, a number of of very high quality, obviously European uh, players who will not be participating in this Ryder Cup. Well, the, there was a, a court case that favored in, in favor of the DP World Tour. Um, prior to this uh, announcement, I don't know if it was prior to um, all the, the beginning of the talks. And I don't, you know, I know there was a statement saying that they won't be allowed to play. I don't know how many players that are on the live tour are actually qualified right now. The, mm-hmm. There's still a lot of time left for points and um, they don't have as many selections. I, I don't think as the uh, Zach Johnson, the, the American captain has six. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And, and, you know, if you see what Kepka's done in the two major championships that he played in this year, first and a second, uh, almost a shoe-in spot through the qualifying, and certainly uh, any captain would want to have a talented player like Kepka on on their team, and no European player is going to be excited about, oh gosh, I get Brooks Kepka in the match because mm-hmm. uh, he's such a tough competitor. Um, and uh, look, I, I I think maybe. Um, things will change as we go forward. But I think that the hardest part is going to be when, you know, there are certain players that were, you know, that are friendly with the PGA tour players like Brooks, like Dustin Johnson, uh, maybe a Taylor Gooch. And then you have other players that have been adversarial, mm-hmm. uh, very adversarial. Sergio was one of those, um, uh, maybe Patrick Reed and Phil Mickelson. And, and, but how can you, you can't play favorites like that. You know, if there's, if there's going to be a way to come back and play on the PGA Tour, I don't think you can say, well, he's a good guy, so he can come. He's not a good guy. He can't come. Mm. I've, have you been able to eliminate all the notifications on your phone, Brad, or are you still working through all the texts? <laughs> it's crazy. Um, I don't know what to do half the time. Um, and, and frankly, I I, I know, um, you know, just working with NBC, it's, it's we're getting so many requests to do interviews and I'm like, I don't know any more than anybody else does. Right. Um, you know, I, I know a little bit about the, the, the way that the policy board has worked in the past. Um, but th- this is extraordinary. 
All right, you know a little thing or two about putting, and I, I cannot, like, in good conscience, let you go without asking you for, like, one, like, an overall putting tip. Like, is there a mentality? Is there one thing that you could tell somebody who's, who's struggling with the flat stick? Well, there's probably a bunch of things. I've got the TV on here in the background, and it's, it's cool to see Corey Connors' name up at the top here after round one. You know, of course, the players really don't know. And, and you know, when Corey Connors, I look at him a little bit like Scotty Scheffler. He's a guy that that's really good from A to B, from, yeah. you know, T to green. Um, and the putter's not always his strong point, but when they're confident when they're on, it, it really helps. And, um, you know, there's, there's so many things about putting that are, that are really cool to talk about and see. And, you know, we think that the stroke is uh, the ultimate most important thing, but I've seen guys that have great strokes and um, not be good putters. I've seen players with unusual styles, whether it's the type of putter they use, the way they address the ball um, that can make putts um, like it's no issue. You look at a player like Adam Scott, who, universally is acclaimed as having one of the best golf swings ever. And he has to use his long putter and bend over awkwardly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then sometimes putts really well that way. So there's an affliction to that. But I mean, I think we, we, when players try to get too perfect with putting and there's so many devices and so many different uh, training aids that the players use, I think sometimes it can cause a little bit of a kink. And I, I have this great quote that I learned from Bob Rotella, who is a sports psychologist, uh, for so many big players. And he says, it's more important to be decisive than it is to be correct. Uh, and if you can apply that to be putting, it's more important to be decisive than it is to be correct. Um, you know, you can play, you know, a six, seven foot putt with, um, that has some break in it. Um, you can play it with firm speed, soft speed. And I say to players, I think I'd like to see you practice on the putting green putts from five, six, seven feet from both right to left and left to right. And even up the hill and downhill and try to hit the balls in with different speeds and learn what touches, learn to see, you know, what extreme is, how hard can you hit a putt in? How softly can you hit a putt in? Um, and, and I like to think that the, the best putters in the world learned how to putt organically. They weren't taught how to putt. And I don't know if that makes sense, but that's um, something that most of people that learned how to putt were young kids and they just spent a lot of time, you know, learning their craft. I love that. And you know what? Uh, being decisive, if not necessarily correct, also applies to sports radio. So, they, yeah, you, you just got to be loud. And if you're loud wrong, well, you, <laughs> that happens too. Uh, no, that, that's great exactly. advice. <laughs> that's great advice, Brad. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, really appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to you and uh, hope you have a great ending your national championship and the focus on golf and not all the other politics involved. Yeah, we will. Uh, there'll be uh, both will be sprinkled in, but yeah, eventually we'll get around to the golf. Uh, thanks, Brad. Awesome. All right. Great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks. There's Brad Faxon, eight time winner on the PGA tour golf broadcaster for NBC. One of the best putters of the ball in the history of the sport. He's a guy that, yeah, I mean, wasn't not good at the other stuff, but a guy of his stature, obviously hitting the ball not nearly as far as some of the bigger hitters in his day. He had to make his hay on the greens, which he was able to do. Um, again, if you miss it, number one takeaway from Brad Faxon, as far as his putting advice, just decide and be confident. And even if you're wrong, it's better to be confident and choose uh, a way to approach a putt than to uh, make sure that your stroke is correct. All right, uh, a couple of stories we haven't got to. Before we sign off here and hand it over to Blair and Barker, let's bring in 
producer Mike Gentili. Hello, Michael. Hello, Ben. What a show. Yeah, it's been an incredible show. Incredible, incredible show. Truly has. And, and like the Shane Doan thing kind of like gets lost in the shuffle. You you brought it up at the end of the first hour here. I mean, you would think that that's maybe step one of a multi-step approach to re-signing Austin Matthews. Um, maybe we Smart get some move. more information before uh, tomorrow's show. But yeah, yeah, that's... Listen, we got the live golf thing. We got the PGA Tour. Um, we got, well, an NBA Finals game that we didn't even get to so far in the program. What else we got today? Well, obviously, Paul Maurice uh, spoke today. Game three, Stanley Cup Finals. You got to think this is Florida's chance to make it a series or it's over. And what has Florida done this whole time? Be physical. And you know what he thinks they should do? Not be physical. Here's Paul Maurice. I, I think the Boston series was more physical than this series. I think we've made this series more physical than it needs to be. We had 22 hits in the first period in game two. You would prorate that out. You don't need 66 hits in a game. Matter of fact, there's an energy cost to that. I think that we have hitters and we've got guys and you need to finish Texas time, but I, I don't necessarily need Carter Verhege having five. Yeah, I think that's uh, a team that has gotten by taking the most penalties in the Stanley Cup playoffs, but getting spectacular goaltending, being saved daily by Sergei Bobrovsky. That's no longer happening. Four power play goals for Vegas over the first two games of the series. As a guy that's saying, you know what? Maybe it's actually time to rein that in. And maybe, you know, maybe it's not all the referees. And maybe it's not, I mean, man, this feels like eons ago, but like, yeah, holding up the fingers on your chest, how many power play opportunities they've gotten, how many we've gotten. Maybe it's like a little bit on us that this continues series after series after series. Maybe not sustainable. Well, and it takes two to tango when it comes to violence in hockey, Ben. And the clubhouse leader for Conn Smythe is Jonathan Marcheseau at minus 118. He was about to tussle with a fellow 5-9-er, Ryan Lomberg of the Panthers. Here's what he said when he was mic'd up last game. <laughs> You're not worth it. You're not worth it, little man. I, I love that so much. Um... I don't love as much that, that Marcia so wasn't pleased that that, that that info got out. He said, uh, well, they want things to get spiced up, I guess, because for me, I would not want it released, which, okay, sure, you don't want to necessarily engage, especially uh, against a team that you're up two games to none against. I, I understand that entirely. But, like, uh, we'll see at the end of the series what the overall ratings are. I don't think this is one that's... That's going to, you know, all of a sudden Gary Bettman at the conclusion of the Stanley Cup Finals is not going to say, you know what I said? Cap's only going up a million? Actually, 10 million <laughs> next year because this Cup Finals was the most viewed of all time. Jonathan Marsh is, oh, I know you're like in your own little bubble trying to win a Stanley Cup as you should be, trying to win a Conn Smythe as you should be. But like there's a, there's, yeah, in the grander scheme of things, this is actually probably good for the sport that there's, an admission of of some on ice rivalry that there is. Not worth it, little man. Five <laughs> <It's> nine, <laughs> little man. Well, that's and they're both the we? same size too, right? That's I love that. I love like the five nine guy looking at the other five nine guy and calling him little man. There's that's spectacular, spectacular stuff. We need more of that. I and you know what's surprising too that he would be surprised that this got out because so often. You, you, there's like some sort of a vetting process when it comes to guys being mic'd up and they, they can't just like air it live, obviously. There's no like live stream when these guys wear microphones or I don't know if that was a parabolic mic or, or whether he was actually wearing the microphone. But yeah, that will, that, that, that he had no heads up that his little tete-a-tete -tete 
with his fellow five niner was uh was gonna be uh broadcast out there yeah, worth it, little man. yeah little man on little man all right thanks mike all right when we come back it'll be tomorrow because coming up next it's blair and barker and you know what they'll get you set for uh, the finale of this four game series between the blue jays and houston astros framber valdez ain't no oakland a's which he's faced twice already this season he's a good pitcher but boy Hard not to look at those numbers with uh, just the tiniest grain of salt. No uh, Dalton Varsho in the lineup. Santiago Espinal in the lineup. Uh, Whit Merrifield in left field. We'll be back tomorrow for a Friday edition of the Fan Drive Time. Enjoy Blair and Barker and then the Blue Jays game, everybody. I'm Ben Ennis. This is Sportsnet 590 The Fan.